0: Good morning friends. A massive shout out to everyone joining us online. Carrie, Alan and the crew out at St. George, our friends down in Canberra and around Australia. My wife is also looking after my 21 month old son who's not well today. So massive shout out to Archer. Please behave for mum at home and to all others joining us online. Thank you for those who are with us today as well. My name is Michael. I am the lead minister here at New Life. It's my pleasure to be bringing you week five in our series on Ephesians. We're in week five, friends. We've done four weeks already, another fifth week. We're not even halfway yet. There is so much gold to learn. A couple of things I wanted to uh, note is that for the next three weeks, um, Sarah and I are going to celebrate being six months in the job of lead minister, and we're going away on holidays for a little bit. So... I assume it's because you want me to rest, not not preach, so... (laughs) Thank you for clapping. Um, no, we are excited, and uh, but the beauty about New Life is that we have such a litany of great preachers and communicators here. Next week, we're calling it Generation Sunday, and our Generations Pastor Jason Mountjoy, who's the most intelligent bogan that I know, is coming to preach all three services. It's going to be a wild, fun time. I encourage you to come along and be a part of that. The week after, Pastor Anna Houston is going to be preaching. The week after that, Tim Hanna will be preaching. There's you're not even gonna miss me while I'm gone. It's gonna be beautiful. But next week, being Generation Sunday, I love how our kids' ministry is innovating. And so, what they've decided is they wanna give our young people an opportunity to invite their friends to church. So, today, if you have children, they will be making invitations for their friends to invite them to church next weekend. And it says on the front, you're invited to kids' life. Now, on the inside, they're gonna draw their favorite thing about kid life. Kids Life, and then explain to Dear Timmy, you should come to Kids Life because it's awesome. From Sarah or whoever it is. It's a great idea. But parents, can I just ask, your kids will be emboldened by your encouragement. They will come home with the invitation and ask them in the car, Hey, who could you give that to this week? Imagine if we see young people in Kids Life come to know Jesus and their families come to know Jesus because of the evangelism of our children. This is cool. I love what James and the team are doing out at Kids Life. On that note, friends, would you join with me as we pray? Gracious God, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, as we come this morning before scripture, we all come from different backgrounds. We all come from different weeks, from different tensions or different celebrations. And God, you know them all. But right now, help us to focus our heart and our mind on what you want to say. Lord, warm our hearts again. Move truth from our head to our heart. May we not just know what you've said. May we experience it as truth and reality. Bring divine revelation in this room. For those who do not yet know you, Father, for those who are not yet Christians in this room, Lord, we intercede for them this morning. We pray that they would come to know the truth of the gospel, that Jesus loves them. But may we all walk out of here knowing the truth that Jesus loves us. So less of me and more of you, I pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Have you ever wondered how something worked? Have you ever been... Uh, you know, perplexed by the mysterious nature as to how something worked. Um, I remember a couple of years ago when still to this day, I was shocked by something I did not know. Um, when I was younger, I thought there was a lot more things that I knew than I actually did. And so when about nine years ago, Sarah and I were dating, and as we were dating to stay up later and hang out and have fun, we, we would play board games together. And we'd play this particular board game called Scattergreeze. And in categories, what happens is is that you're given a letter. So like, for instance, in this scenario, we were given the letter T. And then you have to come up with words under all different categories that start with T in a time limit. It's a really fun game. And, uh, you know, often I would dominate and win. But that's a side matter, doesn't (laughs) Well, she's not here to defend herself. So there's this sense where, where, where you kind of come up with all these words. And I remember one night we got the letter T. And the category we had to come up with a letter starting with T was was the uh, category of farm. Turn to the person next to you and name a farm that starts with T. Guys, some of you are still looking at me. We do this all the time. Turn to the person next to you. What's a farm starting with T? Some of you have got it. Some of you are wondering. Some of you are perplexed. Now, for me, for me, I said turtle farm. Any other turtle farmers out there? Yeah, cool. I don't actually think they exist. Sorry, James. But I was just like, uh, choose an animal that starts with T and then add farm on the back end of it. But then my wife, Sarah, she turns around and she goes, tree farm. And I cracked up laughing at her. I'm like, oh, sweetheart, that's so cute. You think people farm trees. And she goes, yes, they do. And I'm like, oh, you're still at university. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, I know a little bit more about the world. And let me tell you, people don't farm trees. She goes, where do you think they get wood from? I'm like, just they walk into any forest and just, which is true, that, that does happen. But then she's like, no, Michael, seriously, there are tree farms. I'm like, no, there aren't, Sarah. You don't win on convincing me there's tree farms. So she went and got my mum. My mom was like, no, sweetie, there, there, are, there are tree farms. I'm like, "Mom, don't call me sweetie in front of my girlfriend, number one. Number two, tree farms don't exist. And she's like, no, they." so I Googled it. Long story short. Tree farms are real. Who knew this? What? I missed this day in school. What bothered my mind is that I drive to the Sunshine Coast and you drive past tree farms. I thought God was just really intentional with his planting. I was like, oh, you nailed it here, but, you know... Down in the rainforest, that wasn't too good, God. Like, you need to work on that part. No, it's like a farmer 60 years ago went and planted everything. This is like, you know, long-term investment kind of stuff. He's like, in 60 years' time, I'll be rich. I don't know what I'm going to do till then. It boggled my mind. It still does. Every time we drive to the Sunshine Coast, I'm like, Sarah, 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 look, it's a tree farm. Someone planted that tree. That's amazing. And Sarah's like, yes, it's a tree farm. Stop bringing it up. I'm lost in the wonder. And I'm not kidding. Like, you're going to ask Sarah. It blows my mind all the time. I'm like, man, that's, a, that's such a straight line of trees right there. It blows my mind. But there is a different reaction when Sarah drives past the trees. I'm nudging her, going, look at the trees. And she's rolling her eyes because, friends, her heart has become cold to the wonder of the world <laughs> around her. There are two reactions when Sarah and I see tree farms, one of wonder and amazement and one of over-familiarity, one of incredulity and one which says, meh. And you know, the reason why I raise this is because I think that that's sometimes the two kinds of reactions we have to the gospel. That for some of us, the gospel was revealed that you make it in. Jesus Christ gave everything to include you and forgive you. And we're like, wow, wow. And others of us are like, yes, it's a Sunday. We talked about this last week and the week before. And and next week, it'll probably be this. I mean, come on. (laughs) We drive past the tree farm all the time. And we've stopped saying, wow. Now, tree farms, being compared to the gospel, is like comparing dirt to gold. I recognize that. But I highlight this, that for some of us, we've lost the wow factor. We've lost the incredulity towards the mystery of the truth of the gospel. We rock up to church and we've become overly familiar with, with, with the truth that for some people, they are still saying wow. And this, this great theological preacher, this lady named Susie Silk, She says it like this. She says, she asks a question when preaching through Ephesians chapter 3. She says, Have you lost the wonder? So let me ask you today, friends Have you lost the wonder? Do you still say, Wow? Or do you just passively rock up and sit in church, All my life you have been faithful. All my life, you have been so, so good. Thank God we get to sit down. We walk up to a small group and someone unpacks Ephesians and you're like, yeah, like Michael talked about this on Sunday. Can we do something different? We open our word. We come before God in prayer and we're just like sliding through. But are you someone that is still right on the edge of your seat and going, Wow. See, this is what Paul is doing through the whole book of Ephesians in Ephesians 1 to 3. He's actually what he's trying to do is reinvigorate the heart of the Ephesian church. He's trying to remind them, guys, this is the gospel. This stuff matters. This stuff's amazing. He's calling the Ephesian church. What I think God's still calling us back to today. Don't get overly familiar with this. This is still fantastic news. Is it fantastic news for you today? As Paul writes to the Ephesian church, those of you who are joining us, we're studying the book of Ephesians, which is a letter in the Bible written to a church in Ephesus. That church was made up of mainly Gentiles. And Paul is writing to Christians, reminding them of the truth of the gospel. And he reaches this point in Ephesians chapter 3, as he begins to pivot from the gospel to the 4, 5, and 6, where he talks about how the gospel changes our life. And he, he kind of recalls and summarizes and says, Remember, this stuff is still amazing. That's where we start. If you want to open your Bibles today to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. If you want to turn your Bibles on, if you want to pretend like you know what turning your Bible, just pull out something, turn it on, and there's a screen in front of you. That can be your and the reason why we do this is reading the Bible isn't the pastor's job, it's a communal activity. So pull out your Bible today and let's read together. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Have we lost the wonder? Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, he says, I Paul. A prisoner of Christ. Now let's pause there for this reason. For what reason? In Ephesians chapter 2, last week, we found out that Paul talks about the idea that Gentiles and Jews are both woven into the family of God. And now they're being built up into his temple. That the temple is in a geographic place, it is a people. And we are the temple of God in the world. It's a beautiful truth. His presence inhabits the temple of God. Paul goes on and says, For this reason, and then he reintroduces himself, I Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Let me ask you a question. Who does Paul seem to think he is a prisoner of? It's not a trick question. Paul tells you, Christ Jesus. Now, this should perplex us. If you're not sure why, we found out the last couple of weeks, Paul's writing the letter to the Ephesian church from prison. He's under house arrest. And around him, in this very moment he's writing, there would be Roman guards because he is in prison in the middle of Rome. And, And he's been put in prison by Roman guards, and he's on his way to be tried in a Roman court to face a Roman execution. But Paul, for some reason, turns around and goes, I am a prisoner of, not Rome, not man, not some government or ruling authority. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't seem to say it with like, how terrible is this? There's this exuberance to Paul. He's like, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why is Paul so excited by this fact? Because he's trying to highlight to the Ephesian church this truth, that his imprisonment is not the result of mankind thwarting the plans of God. His suffering is not because mankind has interrupted what God is doing. No, no, no. His imprisonment is a result of his obedience to Jesus. Not because he broke the rules of man, but because he is on a mission from God. Listen to how he celebrates his kindness. friends. I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why is he excited by this fact? Well, then he turns to the Ephesian church and he blames them because of you. I'm here because of you guys. But once again, this isn't a bad thing. You see, the reason why he blames the Gentiles is because he is in prison. Because back in those days, Paul took a Gentile into the Jewish temple courts where they were not allowed to go. Why? Because Paul believed that the kingdom of God was now no longer based on race, but was open to every tribe, every language, and every tongue. And so he made a point taking a Gentile in where they were barred from and the Jewish people like, imprison this man. And he's like, I'm on mission from Jesus. I'm in prison for the glory of God. This is a powerful revelation from Paul. He let himself be imprisoned because he had clarity around his calling. Paul had an eternal perspective on his situation. Why? Because he was lost in the wonder of the mystery of the gospel. What is the mystery of the gospel? Before we get there, Paul goes on to describe himself in a different way as well. He says, I was a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Everyone say, steward. When Paul talks about God's grace here, he talks about it as a steward. He doesn't say, I am a recipient of God's grace. He says, I am a steward of God's grace. Why is this important? Because how Paul talks about God's grace is what he is kind of helps us see how Paul sees the purpose of God's grace. Are you a recipient of the grace of God or are you a steward of the grace of God? What does that mean? If I gave you $10 million as a recipient, what does that look like? If I gave you ten, like, hey, receive this $10 million, you'd be like, great, you the $10 million, you buy yourself a car, you go buy a house, you might be charitable with it, but you have received it for you. You're benefiting yourself. But if I gave you $10 million to steward, how does that shift? You're not only going, what do I want? You go, okay, I've got to steward this for a mission that Michael has for me. Why, how, what would it look like for me to steward these riches faithfully, not just for myself, but for everybody? This is the shift in Paul. I'm, I'm not just forgiven for me. I have been given God's grace for everyone. See, friends, this is the truth of Christianity. The truth of Christianity is that you have not just been saved to be seated. You have been saved to be sent. That we are stewards of the grace of God. Paul doesn't see prison as a problem because he sees it as part of the mission of telling all people that they've made it in. How are you stewarding the grace of God? You're not called to do it like Paul did. Paul had a unique stewardship upon his life. He was a, a capital A apostle. An apostle in those days, there were only 12 or 13 of these guys who wrote most of the New Testament and established the authority of the early church. You're not called to be that kind of apostle. Paul also went and church planted most of the Middle East. That's not your calling either. But you're still called to be a steward in a unique way. God has uniquely purposed you, uniquely placed you, and uniquely called you, not just to be forgiven, but to be on mission for his glory. You are a steward, not just a recipient. This is a beautiful unpacking of Paul as he starts to unweave. You know, Ephesians 3 is a bit technical. It's, it, it's got a lot of language in it. But if we unpick it, we see Paul's revealing to us a beautiful truth. What is he a steward of God's grace? What does this mean? He reveals what he's actually purposed to do. He's come to tell people how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written you briefly. briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Sidebar for a second: When Paul talks about apostles and apostles, uh, apostles, apostles and prophets, when he talks about apostles and prophets, he's actually establishing the scriptural authority of the early church fathers to write scripture on top of the Old Testament. So that's what Paul's referencing. yet. we'll get into that another time but why does he talk get so fixated on a mystery you cannot understand ephesians without understanding how important it is for paul to talk about mystery everyone say mystery, mystery. beautiful see when we think of mystery what do we think of we think of a who done it we think of like Murder, She Wrote. Does anyone else remember Murder, She Wrote back in the day? Yeah, I'm old enough for that. I'm with you. There was this Murder, She Wrote kind of whodunit or like Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys or, you know, Dr. Whoever, like this kind of sense of there's a crime. You've got to find the clues and find the perpetrator. And this would be a misunderstanding of the mystery that Paul is wanting to talk about. Paul is talking about a mystery, a truth that is revealed that you can wonder at. But first, the word he's using for mystery is actually mysterion in Greek. And mysterion doesn't mean a hidden truth you've got to find clues to. It means a hidden truth that is revealed to you once you're initiated in. That once you've been initiated into the family of God, you can understand a mystery that has been hidden for all of time. So there is a mystery, friends, that God has hidden from all creation that when we become part of his family, we get to know and celebrate do you know the mystery of the gospel that is now made true to you that we should now celebrate? Do you know the power of the gospel in such a way that Paul calls about, it? I get to reveal this mystery and am I'm imprisoned for it. What is the mystery that Paul's talking about? It says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6. This mystery, Paul writes, you ready for the big reveal? Is that the Gentiles our fellow heirs Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, if you're anything like me, this feels like a bit of a bait and switch by Paul. It's like, there's an amazing mystery. And then he's like, it's the Gentiles. Like, oh, we touched on this last week. That's not that interesting, Paul. Get over it. Like, what's new here? Why is Paul reinforcing this? Because this truth is central to understanding the power of the gospel. Who are the Gentiles? Anyone that wasn't Jewish who is the gentiles anyone that wasn't jewish friends this is god making a radically inclusive statement that now not just the jewish people in the old testament the jewish people were fellow heirs got to be members of the body of god of the children of god they were partakers of god's promise but now paul is writing he's saying actually this promise is now not just the jewish nation now it's going to be All people. This is a radical truth where Paul says the kingdom of God is exclusively inclusive. That is a radical thing that should offend our sensibilities as to who makes it in. This to a Jewish reader would have been like, you're kidding me. Gentiles make what? Even them. So if you're not sitting there today going, "Eh." if you're just like, yeah, whatever it's probably because you need a a wow moment to understand how offensive this truth could be. So let, let me replace the word gentile. Who might we be concerned God wants to include? This mystery is that the Muslims, the Buddhists, the atheists, that annoying office worker, that family member, that male, that female. This mystery is that these people now have the opportunity to be fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, you might be like, now this is often what we do. When I said Muslims, some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. hang on. You've got to qualify that Michael. And what we end up doing is we start protecting grace. Well, Michael, you, uh, okay, hang on. What do you mean? Well, Paul's clear here. How do you get to partake in the promise? In Christ Jesus through the gospel. This isn't a message of universalism, but it is a message of universal availability to anyone that would declare Jesus Christ as Lord. There is not a preconceived category of, well, as long as you weren't a part of a religion that offends me beforehand, then you can come to know Jesus. No, this is Everybody. And we need to recognize how scandalous it is that we should be looking around the church and looking at people going, even him? And God's like, even him? If we aren't offended or concerned or maybe our cultural fleshly nature, sometimes confronted by the kind of people who we find sitting next to us in church, then we are not a part of the church that radically believes in the gospel of God. Brennan Manning says it like this. He kind of paints this beautiful picture. He paints a beautiful picture of what it would look like one day to stand before the throne. So I want to ask you this question Picture who would be standing next to you when you stand before the throne of God? Maybe it might be the person next to you. It might be someone else. But who would it be? Well, it's going to be my family, Michael. All right, look a bit, look a bit further. This is what Brennan Manning suggests. Because you see, friends, it's salvation is by grace through faith. Therefore, he writes, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb on that last day, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands and worshipping God, I shall see the prostitute from down the road who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. But she called on the name of Jesus. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could, faced with grueling alternatives. But she called on the name of Jesus. I shall see the businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions was immoral in the way he handled his money. But in the worst moment of his life, he called on the name of Jesus. I shall see the insecure pastor addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love but he called on the name of Jesus. I shall see the CEO who did backroom deals when the boardroom was shut down. I shall see the mother who failed her children. I shall see the father who failed his family. I shall see broken men and women who will confuse me and we will all ask, how are any of these people included? Then the voice from the throne will echo, they have been washed. Their robes have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are, friends. Brenning writes, there we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life and bested by trials, wearing the bloody garments of life's tribulations, but through it all, they clung to faith. They clung to Jesus. My friends, if this is not good news for you, that you do not understand the gospel of grace, If I read any of those categories and you're like, oh, I'm not sure, Michael. You don't get what it means for God's grace to be good news. This should rise up in us a moment where we go, really? Surely not. And God's grace says, no, yes, it is true. The mystery of the gospel is that God has removed every qualification for acceptance except once. Faith. Grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Friends, this should warm our hearts. Because here's the truth, friends. We should not look around this church and go, Michael, just real quick, them? No, Jesus, I just don't look at me so much. Look at her. What are you doing? We should stand there and go, Jesus, even me? Even me? The church is filled with an even me kind of people who are not spending their time trying to work out who makes it in and doesn't, but standing back in incredulity going, I make it in. Too many Christians have become unfamiliar with their brokenness and overly familiar with their need for judgment. This is the mystery of the gospel. I didn't say this in the first service, but it actually... I sensed in worship I needed to. John Stott says this, The radical nature of God's plan, which was that the theocracy, the Jewish nation and the God's rule, would be no more and replaced by a new international community, the church. That this church would be the body of Christ, organically united to him, that Jews and Gentiles, that all of us, would be incorporated into Christ and his church on equal terms without any distinction. This is why when Anna prayed earlier, she did not pray for one side of the Middle East conflict. She prayed for all people, but God cares for all people, and so do we. This is deeply important. You know why? Because God cared for you. God cared for even me, and when we bring race, religion, as a way of we qualify God's care and God's love, we've missed the gospel altogether. This is scandalous. See, forgiveness in the church is based upon not a performance you stand upon, By choosing whose feet you will fall at. Verse 6 The mystery of the gospel is that Gentiles, even we, are fellow members, we're fellow heirs, and we inherit the same promise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul goes on, he's really pumped, he's excited. He says this Of this gospel, he writes, I was made a minister. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me. To me, Paul writes, though I am the very least of all the saints. Why is Paul so fixated on himself here? Why is he being like, guys, I was made a minister. Is he flexing? Is he like, look how good I am? No, 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 you see, the reason why Paul's highlighting this is he remembers who he was before Jesus. He remembers what his life was like before he got included. Who was was Paul? Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the best. If there was something in the law, the one person that was known for keeping it perfectly was Paul. He was the most religious of them all. But more than that, he made it his life mission to go around persecuting Christians. Before Paul met Jesus, he traveled around the Middle East imprisoning and killing Christian people. You want to know who would have hated Gentiles? Paul. But that was before he was Paul. That was before he met Jesus and he was a man named Saul who was persecuting everything and everybody. And there's this sense here where what Paul's going, I made it. How weird is this? How cool is this? Guys, I'm imprisoned for the very thing I used to put people in prison for. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Even me, Paul says. This is not a statement of even me, friends. He's going, guys, if you're wondering if you can make it, if you're wondering if you get to be included, then make sure you measure your list of wrongdoing next to Paul and that you've traveled around the Middle East killing Christians and imprisoning them and persecuting people because of their race. And then maybe you can worry about God's grace not being enough to cover you. But Paul's like, even I the least of all the saints. I get to be a part of this. The grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul's been on a search. Where where does Christ's riches end, I wonder? I wonder how bad I need to be for God to stop forgiving me. What Paul has found is there is no end. See, I don't know about you, but one of the most awkward moments for me still is that moment where you go to pay at the FPOS machine, that pay pass moment. It's because I remember what it was like being a university student, living week to week, trying to buy Magi noodles. It was hard. You'd go up and you'd put your card in, and the, the thing would beep across the screen, processing, processing. Now, this day and age, I still have trauma from a from university. So I'm like, oh my gosh, did Sarah transfer the money? Oh no! What if I don't have enough money? And then people are going to laugh at me. And then I'm going to have to go to the car. And then, and then oh no! And I, you know I start to do I have enough funds in the account? And then suddenly it goes ding approved. I'm like oh thank goodness I know how to budget. All right, here we go. Right there's that sense because we know there is a limit to money. But sometimes we treat the grace of God the same way. Hey God, I stuffed up again. I think this time's it. I think this time it's done. Man, I I, I don't know God's grace covers it, but I don't know if I can pay past this much. And Paul goes, oh friend, you cannot bankrupt the grace of God. You cannot bankrupt the grace of God. Unsearchable are the riches. This is a beautiful truth. It means no matter how dark your sin, the grace of God runs further than your furthest running. He runs further than you could ever possibly run away from him and covers your sin. And when we say something like this, my sin is too much for God to forgive, this is literally what we're saying. My sin is more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross of Calvary. It's a statement of pride. But when we realize nothing, nothing can, can, can outrun, outpace, or outsin the grace of God. Then we go, how unsearchable are the riches of God. God, I don't want to be a recipient of this. I'm going to be a steward. I'm going to tell everybody, even you, even you. You want to know why? Because it's even me. And it's this that Paul says. This is the beautiful mystery of God's grace. Friends, have you lost the wonder of the gospel? Have you lost the moment of standing back and going, even me, God? God even me and paul paul talks about this he goes this is so beautiful because this is what i've come to do i've come to bring light for everybody as to what is the mystery so what was hidden for ages in god now this is really bizarre paul seems to insinuate that god has been hiding his plans from humanity he's been holding and playing his cards close to his chest he hasn't revealed what he's up to why? Why would Paul say this? Why would God hide his plans from us? Because I wonder, you know that moment in the action movie where Bruce Willis stands up there and like, how are you going to save the day? And he tells them his plans and they go, what? That's stupid. That'll never work. How could you possibly do it? And Bruce Willis just looks at the camera and is like, watch me. And you're like, and he does, and you're at the end like, man, this is the best movie of all time, right? So, so, so what happens is that they laugh at the hero's plans. I, I wonder if it's the same with God. And the way I know this is because we actually see how humanity responds when God lets them in to his plan. Does not Peter get asked by Christ who do people say that I am? And, Jesus, and he's like, you are the son of God, the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, I tell you truly, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And then he goes on to say to Peter, I'm going to go be killed. And then be risen again. And how does Peter respond to hearing the plans of God? The Bible tells us he rebukes Jesus. No, 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 Jesus, that's stupid. You're not doing that. You can't do that. That will never work. And then you see Peter in the book of Acts, and he's like, it worked. Oh, my gosh. So what do we find out about the plans of God? Friends, so often God isn't revealing his plans to us, because what if, what if they're more incredulous, more amazing, more impossible than you could ever imagine? He's saying, just trust me, because you probably wouldn't think I could do what I'm about to do. But trust how this plan's gonna unfail. And when you don't trust me, realize that no one knew Jesus was coming. No one knew Jesus was going to do what he was going to do because they wouldn't have believed that that would be the kingmaker, the move of all moves, but it worked. So trust me that now I'm revealing you to part of the mystery, but one day everything will make sense. What if, friends, what God is going to do to finish the story is more amazing than you could possibly dare imagine, more impossible than you could possibly dare conceive. This is what he's talking about here. He says, guess what? I've hidden my plans from everybody. In fact, in the last part of the verse, he goes, I've actually hidden my plans that now I'm making it known to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is a weird thing to say. When Paul is writing of the heavenly places, who is he talking about? Angels and demons. And sometimes we talk about the demonic force or angelic beings as if they're omniscient and all-knowing. They're not. Only God is all-knowing. Now, you might be like, Michael, Angels, I did not know we believed in that. We will, maybe we'll do a sermon on it at some stage, so don't get too lost there. But we do believe in the spiritual realm. But what is Paul saying here? They were not aware of the plans of God. God played their plans closely to his chest. So much so that now angels and demons are leaning in and going, God's doing what? They're leaning in and they're saying, God's doing Even them? Where are they leaning in? Where's the center stage that the angels and demons are actually watching to see the unfolding plan of God's grace and salvation? What does it say earlier? So that through the, third line, up from the bottom, through the, that's okay, I'll do it, through the church. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So so what does this tell us? Um, I don't play tennis. So, people helped me on the first serve, so I'm going to not butcher this analogy too much. But you know how, like at Wimbledon, there's a whole bunch of different courts? It's like 50 courts or something. And then there's one central court. I think it's called Center Court. Did I get that right? Awesome. Now, when you're watching Wimbledon, where is the court you really want to be watching? Center Court. It's where everyone's leaning in and being like, yeah, but what's happening on center court? Stop showing us court 15. Show us center court. That's where the action is. What Paul is saying here, you want to know where center court is for the universe? You want to know where both the angelic and demonic forces are leaning in to see the unfolding wisdom of God? The church. The church. Some of you rocked up today and there is angels and demons who know your story, who know what's been going through your life, who know what you did last night, know what you've been thinking. And then looking at God and going, even them? What? No. And from the throne, you hear this voice saying, I have washed them clean. Even them. Go, wait, wait, I've planned this from eternity. Even them. Some of you are struggling through your week and you dare to raise your hands in worship and be in awe and wonder at the goodness of God. All my life, you have been faithful. All my life, God, you've been so, so good. And there are demonic forces going, we tried to discourage them this week. There was enough battle in their week. Why are they singing? This doesn't make sense. And the mystery of the gospel is being unfolded as the people of God choose to declare his praises and his glory in the world. This is center court, friends. Not this building, but these people. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known, not just to humanity, to the whole spiritual realm. And they're leaning in and they're looking at some of you and you're asking the question, even me. And there are spiritual forces coming in and agreeing with you and going, get God, I like, even them. God says, even them, even them. This is good news, friends that some of us have forgotten to celebrate, to revel in. There's this great quote that says this from John Stott, but who are the audience? They are the cosmic intelligences and the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. We are to be, to think of them as spectators of the drama of salvation. Thus, the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. Now, some of you are sitting here saying, Michael, the church has hurt me. It will do that. It's filled with people. Some of you are seeing it going, church doesn't always look as so beautiful and glorious. But this is what's so amazing, is that no matter how many times the church gets it wrong, no matter how many times the church stuffs it up, God still redeems it. God still turns the story around. God still uses the church as the source of hope and light. He he condemns. Some of you are saying, but Michael, the church in the West is dying. What if it's not dying, friends? What if God's refining His bride? What if he's refining and saying, I'm gonna make this a people that the world looks at and goes, wow, they're really full of their own glory. No, it's filled with people going, hey, even me. Oh God, even me. You're including me in your story. And they are wowed by the nature of the gospel. Friends, have you lost the wonder? Because there are things you can't see leaning in and saying, wow, the grace of God does that. So this is why Paul goes on to write, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, guys, why is God doing this? God didn't come up with the idea of the church at the, at, at the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. Since the dawn of time, God has an eternal plan to not just call the Israelites to be His people, but to make a new people, a new humanity, call it the body of Christ and call them all home. It's a beautiful moment when Paul's sitting in this prison under house arrest on the way to his execution. He's saying, I get to write to the center stage of God's work in Ephes- at Ephesus right now and tell them, even you... Get a front seat to the glory and goodness of God. You are accepted into his family. And so Paul says to the church in Ephesus, friends, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you because it's for your glory. Paul had an eternal perspective on his life. He knew that even death wasn't the end, so he wasn't afraid. He had an eternal perspective on his calling. He wasn't just a recipient of the grace of God. He was a steward of the grace of God. He an eternal perspective on the church. If you read all of Paul's letters, you'll know, boy, the church let him down a lot. It screwed up almost every letter. It's like, stop doing this, stop doing this. But he never gave up hope on it. Why? Because the church is the bride of Christ, and Christ never gave up hope on the church because this is the center court where the salvation story of the world is being played out. And here's where it starts. It starts by you not looking at someone across the room and going, God, even them. It starts by you looking at yourself going, God, even me. Me? Because friends, some of us have forgotten the wonder of the gospel. That you get in. That you're a part of the story. And we need to step back and we need to go, wow. Why? Because there is a universe that is leaning in right now where angels are joining us in worship, where demons are shrieking when we baptize, when we celebrate, when you're not discouraged enough, when you lean in and stand and glorify God. The world doesn't just see our light. The spiritual realm says there is something at work here. God isn't finished yet. Have you lost the wonder of the gospel? Would you stand with me this this morning? right now just with your eyes closed there is a moment where some of you are asking even me Michael even me I'm going to tell you as a pastor in this church if God can save me God can save you and before you defend how more broken you are than me or whatever. You don't know my darkness. You don't know where God's brought me from. You don't know my history or my shame. But I can tell you this with authority. If Michael can say, even me, then you can say, even me. That this insecure 21-year-old was mucking around with things he shouldn't have and hurting and breaking hearts and destroying himself found himself in the center court of new life one day, and was told God still loves you. And I realized that I got to say, Wow. So, friends, today, if that's you, I just want to ask just in this song, allow the grace of God just to wash over you. Don't perform for Him. But there are some of you today who you're very good at saying, Even them but you've forgotten to say even me you've lost the wonder you drive past tree farms and it's familiar to you you've lost the incredulity of the gospel and as my ask all the heavenly realms are leaning in right now may they be wowed by the way we respond with an even me kind of worship as we play out the narrative of salvation. Maybe some of you today are not ready to worship God yet. See, here's what I ask. Just stand there in this moment and say, God, reveal to me how it's still even me. It's still an even me truth. It's still an even me reality. But if you know, if you came to church today and you're just like, oh my gosh, even me. Friends, this is when we lean in. We don't sing with passive energy. We lean in and we declare, wow, hallelujah to God, our King of kings and Lord of lords. So Father, as we finish with worship today, transform and shift our hearts. Move in and amongst us, we pray. Let's finish as heaven leans in. Let's join with them as we say, wow. Let's worship together.